I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, September 27th, 2011. Mm-mm. Okay, we're going to do our light edition today. I'm trying to uh, lay some foundation work, and I'm working on something for it and to go along with tomorrow's program. You know, you'll understand why. Maybe tomorrow, but maybe today. I don't I don't know. You'll you'll see. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. As a result, well, we've got to do the biblical work. We've got to compare what people are saying out there and see if that squares with Scripture. And uh, today what we're going to do is something I, I'm surprised I haven't done yet. In fact, I'm kind of kicking myself. Uh, if, I, if, I, if I could be perfectly honest, I'm kind of kicking myself because this is just foundational stuff. What we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we're going to listen to two lectures, uh, one presented by James White and the other by uh, uh, Dr. Walter Martin, actually Dr. James White and Dr. Walter Martin. And both of them are on the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, the reason being is is that um, here's the deal. Not believing in the doctrine of the Trinity is a game stopper. It's um, it's not a negotiable doctrine, and uh, people who do not properly teach the doctrine, uh, you know, uh, regarding God, uh, for instance, T.D. Jakes, and uh, in the fact that he's a modalist, uh, it, that would uh, that 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 puts them outside of the kingdom of God. And so what I'm going to do today is we're going to do some foundational work. Uh, first lecture is by Dr. James White and a lecture that he gave a few years ago regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. And then uh, Dr. Walter Martin's uh, f- famous lecture, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus Christ, and the Doctrine of the Trinity. Again, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to lay some biblical track, if you would, and Dr. White and Dr. Martin uh, attack this doctrine from two different directions. Dr. White handling it from the point of view of church 
history and what the Bible teaches and the different uh, heresies uh, that have come against this uh, this biblical doctrine. And Dr. Walter Martin laying out a good apologetic using uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, Arian heresy as his foil. So uh, what we're going what we're going to do is is I'll take a break between the two lectures, but I will I you know, I will try to interrupt i will try to interrupt them uh, as little as possible and in fact maybe maybe not interrupt them at all it, it's just it's hard for me sometimes to not interrupt um but uh, both of them are good lectures let me point this out in this lec in the first lecture uh, by dr james white uh he makes it perfectly clear that uh, well he believes that the evidence demonstrates that td jakes is a modalist in fact he says so in his uh in this um, in this uh, lecture, so uh, the, the name of this of uh, this particular uh, lecture by Dr. James White is, in, is entitled "The Biblical Truth of the Trinity." Uh, so, without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. James White. We have a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to go ahead and get started. See one of uh, my uh, riding brothers there sneaking in. Did you get the get the bugs all picked out of your teeth today? Good. Most of them. When they're driven into your teeth at some of the speeds you're going, brother, they they're hard to get out. Apparently, uh, one starting off with some motorcycle humor. At one point, I pulled up next to certain people that I will not mention and say, so Romans 13 isn't in your canon, huh? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <clears throat> well, we're all back here in one piece, so that's a, uh, that's a good thing. And uh, I have quite the assignment this morning. Uh, that is in uh, about uh, 42 minutes to try to uh, excite you and uh, educate you without bewildering you or, in point of fact, uh, repelling you uh, from one of the central doctrines of the faith, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. I hope you have a piece of paper and uh, a pencil or pen, or if you're uh, really up to speed, your uh, PDA is fully charged and ready to go. Uh, someday, that's how we're all going to do it. I'm just going to have an infrared projector up here and just beam you all my notes, and uh, that's, that's how it's going to work someday. But until uh, then, we have uh, a little bit of a presentation up on the screen that should hopefully help you out as we, as we move along. Uh, just a few preliminary considerations by way of introduction. I would normally spend more time on this, but I want to get into the, uh, the meat of the matter, but especially due to the fact that there is a reason to discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. I began uh, my book on the subject by saying I love the Trinity and asked the reader, when was the last time you heard anyone say that? Uh, there is a reason for asking that question, because for most evangelicals, you've never heard anyone say that. You will hear people say, I love Bible prophecy. You will hear people say, I love the prayer of Jabez. You'll hear people say, uh, I love uh, worship, uh, all sorts of things like that. But you almost never hear someone say, I love the Trinity. And I think there's a reason for that. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us are uncomfortable with the doctrine of the Trinity because we have to confess we don't really understand it. We know that we could be asked particular questions 
that would leave us going, well, uh, and in fact, if I were to start off, and I've always wanted to do this, I've just never had the guts to do it. If I were to start off by, by handing out a test, and uh, I said, uh, I will randomly read responses, and you have to put your name on it, how many of you would feel real good about that test as it was passed out before the presentation, not afterwards? And I think that has a lot to do with why we don't hear people saying, I love the Trinity, because you don't, you don't get passionate about things that in reality you say in the back of your mind, you know, I've got a lot of questions and I, I'm just not sure what all the answers are. And so you don't get passionate about things like that. I'm not passionate about calculus because I never really got it. Okay, it was just not my bailiwick in school. Uh, I, I don't say I love mathematics because I, I got all A's, but that was most of them were 99s, and that was the 90.1 or the 89.7 that was rolled up, you know, type of a situation. So I think that's one of the reasons that we don't hear more discussion of that, and because that, I think that explains some of the decline in worship. You know, I say, what do you mean decline in worship? There's more, uh, there's more worship than there's ever been. Well, it depends on what you call worship. Uh, if worship is focused upon how we feel and making emotions within us, okay, there's plenty of that going along. But if we define worship the way God defines worship, if we define worship as a proclamation of His attributes and His person and the doctrine of the Trinity and the truths of God, well, there's clearly a decline in worship. A large portion of evangelicals couldn't even begin to give you a meaningful discussion of the attributes of God, who God is. And if you don't have a clear picture of who you're worshiping, what are you doing anyways? What's going on? What is worship? To ascribe praise and adoration and worth to someone else. And if you don't know anything about that someone else, what are you doing? That's a question that we have to ask. And so much of worship today is focused not upon God, but upon what we, what makes us feel good. And part of that is because of a decline in understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Historical issues as well. As I mentioned yesterday, with the uh, Da Vinci Code coming out in May of 2006, you're going to have more and more people exposed to the direct assertion that the early church did not believe in the deity of Christ, therefore they did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Your neighbors and friends who go see that are going to hear that, and you're going to have to be prepared to give an answer for that. It's a lie. It's, a, it's an outrageous lie, easily documented to be false, but, hey, they've got the money to put it on screens all across the United States, and uh, that's what they're going to be doing, and making Dan Brown all the more richer. Of course, his riches don't go with him to stand before the judgment bar of God. So uh, we might want to pray for him because uh, he needs to repent. Be that as it may, that kind of thing is out there. In the large portion of liberalism today, while you still may see symbols of the Trinity, uh, you don't have any belief that that's actually true any longer. It's just simply viewed as, as something that developed in the early church, etc., etc. But when you hear people, and, and the cults, for example, will always tell you the doctrine of the Trinity developed at the Council of Nicaea and all the rest of this stuff. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm not expecting you in just a few quotations here. Uh, to, you know, write all this down and to, and to uh, be able to repeat it to somebody else. But just briefly, I want to give you some examples 
of the fact that what you hear over and over and over again, what's found in Newsweek magazine and what's found in the popular culture today about how the doctrine of the Trinity and the deity of Christ developed hundreds of years after Christ and nobody in the early church believed in the deity of Christ. The Da Vinci Code specifically says it was Constantine who came up with this idea. No one up until 325 A.D. had ever believed in the deity of Christ. Well, here is the writings of one of the earliest of the early church fathers, Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch. He went to his martyrdom in 107 or 108 A.D. So we're talking within about, depending on how you date it, but if you use a a standard dating for the book of Revelation, about a decade and a couple years after the writing of the book of Revelation. Very, very early in the history of the church. Ignatius, who is also Theophorus, unto her that hath found mercy in the bountifulness of the Father Most High, and of Jesus Christ, his only Son, of the church that is beloved and enlightened through the will of him who willed all things that are, by faith and love towards Jesus Christ our God, even under her that hath the presidency in the country of the region of the Romans. When he was going to Rome to be martyred, he wrote letters to seven different churches. This is the beginning of his letter to the church at Rome, which interestingly enough, in the course of that letter, he's going to ask them not to do anything that could possibly interfere with his martyrdom. He asked him not to do anything that could possibly stop his martyrdom there in Rome as he went there. And interestingly, just in passing by, uh, this is the only letter where he addresses to a church that he doesn't mention the bishop. You know why? Because Rome didn't have a single bishop until the middle of that century. Uh, gives you a little insight into the development of the doctrine of the papacy over time, but that's neither here nor there. Writing to the Smyrnians, the same person, Ignatius, says, I give glory to Jesus Christ, the God, who bestowed such wisdom upon you. I'd like to read the rest of it because it goes through all sorts of other things, but since we have limited time this morning, I, I will have to skip past that. In the same uh, to the letter to the Ephesians, section 7, I love this one. Listen to this. This is only 107-108. All you ever hear in liberal theological education today is that the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Jesus Christ is the God-man developed over centuries and centuries, blah, 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 blah. Here, within a decade of the close of the canon of the New Testament, there is only one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenuous. God in man, true life in death, son of Mary and son of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. Within one decade of the writing of the New Testament, you have this high Christology that is found in the writings of the early church. Now, at the Council of Nicaea, you're going to hear over and over again, well, this is what happened in Nicaea. Uh, uh, Constantine made Jesus God, and he changed the Bible, and he determined the canon of the Bible, and he determined which books are going in the Bible. All of that is complete baloney, completely ridiculous. You could challenge these individuals, you could challenge Dan Brown to provide you a single fact to substantiate these things. They can't do it. So common has been this kind of assertion by the cults that I wrote an article for the CIA Journal back in the mid-90s called What Really Happened at the Council of Nicaea? that goes through the actual events of the Council of Nicaea, the role of various and sundry people, the subjects that were actually discussed. The canon of Scripture was not relevant at the, at the Council of Nicaea. had nothing to do with the canon of Scripture at all. It just didn't happen. Constantine wasn't doing that kind of stuff. However, you do have discussions of the relationship of the Father and the Son. The Council of Nicaea was called because a man named Arius was teaching that while Jesus Christ could be called God, he was not God in the same sense as the Father. He was a creature, a highly exalted creature, the greatest of all of God's creatures, but he was still a creature. 
He was not of the same substance as the Father. He was a lesser being than the Father. And opposing him was Alexander of, Alex, of, of the city of Alexandria in, in North Africa. And one of his deacons was a man by the name of Athanasius, who became the great defender of the Nicene faith in the centuries or in the decades that followed the Council of Nicaea. So you have the various leaders shown here, Arian, uh, the Arius position. And they believed, if you want to fascinate your friends over lunch today, especially those that are not in this class, you can, you can use these wonderful terms that are up on the screen. Uh, that is, Arius believed that Jesus was of a different substance, that is, he was heterousios. Then you had the uh, Orthodox party, which believed that Jesus was of the same substance as the Father. In other words, God's substance can't be divided up. And since he's truly God, then he is homo usios, the same substance. And then always in every situation, whenever you get two sides fighting, you get somebody in the middle that basically says, can't we all get along, and comes up with a middle position. And that was what Eusebius did, and he said that Jesus was Homoousios of a like substance with the Father. Well, the result of the council was all but two bishops agreed that Jesus Christ was homoousios, one of those, of course, being Arius, and that was the result of the Nicene Creed. Now, interestingly enough, just in passing, if you think that that settled everything, you have a naive view of church history. That is what most people don't mention, and certainly it would be destructive of Dan Brown's millions if people knew this. Uh, for about four decades after the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene faith was under attack, and in fact, at certain points, was in the vast minority. In fact, about 30, 35, 40 years after Nicaea, only Athanasius continued to hold as a major bishop to this viewpoint, and he was kicked out of his church five times once 5,000 Roman soldiers were coming in the front door while he was escaping out the back. And so Arianism, through political uh, chicanery and so on and so forth, became predominant for about 30 or 40 years after the Council of Nicaea. And it was Athanasius's job to stand for that faith, even against councils like the council, uh, uh, the Sirmian Council, that condemned the Nicene perspective. A lot of folks aren't aware of that. So it's not like Constantine comes along, makes Jesus God, forces everybody to believe it, voila, that's it. No. After that period of time, there are many people who rebelled against that. And in fact, it became the majority view for a while which has all sorts of interesting ramifications that I can't get into at this particular point in time. If you were asked to give a basic definition of what the doctrine of the Trinity is, what would you say? Well, here's a basic definition that I would offer to you. Within the one being being, and for those of you who are colorblind guys, uh, the word being there is in a different color than the rest of the text. I'm trying to communicate something there. Within the one being that is God... There exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, that word's in a different color as well, namely the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now you would think a doctrine that can be defined in essentially one sentence wouldn't be all that difficult to discuss. But in reality, every word in this sentence is filled with meaning. And the fact that I have changed the color on being and person indicates where the primary focus needs to be in our thinking. Though, please notice, we are talking about one being, three persons. One what, three who's. Those are not synonymous terms. 
Being in person don't mean the same thing. Notice we're also talking about three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Not three persons that are sort of alike, but are co-equal and co-eternal. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that distinction that I've already drawn is vital to understand between the words being and person. They are different things. Being is what makes something what it is. Person is what makes someone who they are. You are both a being and a person. You are a human being, and we all share that common denominator. We are all human beings. We're all created in the image of God. We are human beings, but we're not all the same human being. We share our creatureliness together, but we are each individually persons. And human being tells us the classification, the what... Whereas the person, your particular individual identity, determines who you are. Those are not the same words. We use those words in different ways. A rock has the being of a rock. A rock truly exists. If you don't think a rock truly exists, you might want to ask the, uh, the, the uh, female police officer in Toledo, Ohio, uh, yesterday. If you saw the news, I happened to click on uh, Fox News and they were talking about the riots in Toledo, Ohio yesterday. There was going to be a Klan march, and uh, some folks there locally didn't like that idea, so they uh, started uh, throwing bricks and rocks, and a a police officer was hit by a brick in the head. She's going to be all right. But uh, ask that police officer, does a brick have being? And she will tell you very firmly, you better believe it does. However, even if she found that brick that hit her in the head, she could take that brick, and she could put that brick in front of her, And she could insult that brick. She could call that brick names. She could say the red color of your brick is a bad red color. It's not a pretty red color. You know what? That brick would care less. Or if she liked the brick, thank you for saving my life and named the brick and petted the brick. Remember pet rocks? They're stranger things. (laughs) Guess what? That may make her feel better. Insulting it might make her feel better. But the brick doesn't care. Why? Because while it has being, it does not have personhood. It is not personal. It ha- so something can have being and not be personal. What we're talking about is we have being, human being, and we are personal. And when we talk about God, what we're saying is the being of God, which is unlimited, eternal, cannot be constricted in time and space. That one being is shared by three eternal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, our being is limited. So our being cannot be shared by three persons. We are creatures. But God's being, being eternal and unlimited, is shared by three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Those are two different terms, and we must distinguish between them. Because the most common misunderstanding, and sadly, if we were to go to most evangelical churches today and pass out a test on this subject and ask questions concerning the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I can guarantee you that I would get at least 50% or more, probably more into the 70s and 80s percentage of people that if I were to ask questions in a certain way, I would get them to adopt an ancient heresy known as modalism. And that is, I would be able to, I, and I did this once, I, I went to a Southern Baptist church in, uh, in Florida, and it was the first time I was there. I can't do it at churches I've been to before, because what you do is you go into like one of the youth uh, uh, classes, 
and they had been studying various sundry cults and isms and things like that. They had been studying Jehovah's Witnesses. And so they brought me in. These kids have never seen me before in their lives. And they say, to, to help us understand Jehovah's Witnesses, we've brought in Elder Lucas. And Elder Lucas is from the local kingdom hall. And he's going to talk to us today about Jehovah's Witnesses. If you want to see kids all of a sudden shut up and listen, uh, tell them a Jehovah's Witnesses in their group. And then have, then I took one of these young, uh, ministerial associate guys, you know, college guys, and within 45 seconds I had him spouting heresy. Because I went to John 1 1, and I said, so in the beginning was the Word, and that's, you think that's Jesus, yes. And the Word was with God, yeah. And the Word was God, uh huh. So Jesus is the God with whom He is. Well, so, so, so there's, you believe there's only one person that's God? Well, yeah. Bing, got him. Now I've got, now I've got him uh, spouting heresy, and I can just wrap him into a, into a nice. And the kids are just sitting there going, "Where's my mom? What's going on here?" You know, and what did you do bringing this guy in here? And of course, you know, you go for a while, and then you stop and tell them who you really are, and then they they, they laugh and breathe and and uh, say other things they shouldn't say, and then you go on from there. So uh, it, it works really, really well. You could do this with almost anybody. So often people, because of many of the bad analogies we use the doctrine of the Trinity, if God is unique, there is no analogy in creation that's going to adequately represent who he is and what his being truly is. Every analogy you've ever heard is going to break down at some point. There are some that are better than others, but there are some that are really, really bad. Really, really bad analogy number one. I am a son. I am a husband. I am a father. That's heresy. Okay? That's heresy. That's called modalism. That's saying I'm one person and I have three different offices. That was one of the first heresies of the early church. Second century, they had to fight against that stuff. That there was one divine being, and he's like an actor on a stage, and uh, sometimes he has the mask of the Father, and then during the incarnation he has the mask of the Son, and then now he has the mask of the Holy Spirit. That kind of error. And there's all sorts of folks who believe that kind of stuff today. Have you ever heard of the United Pentecostal Church International? They likewise are modalists. A slightly different view of that, but they're still modalists. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity, as do certain very popular people today that you'll see on many, many Christian broadcasting networks, such as T.D. Jakes. Anyways, um, same viewpoint. It's heresy. It's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. Now, I want to point out, he just said that T.D. Jakes is a modalist. And the reason he says that is really good reasons, because it's very well documented that T.D. Jakes, um, well, he continues to insist that God has manifested himself in three persons. That's classic, modalistic, Sabellianistic heresy. So, you know, it, it's not just a bunch of discernmentalists out there who think that T.D. Jakes is a modalist. Um, unless, of course, you think Dr. James White is just a discernmentalist. Um, I think Dr. James White is somebody who knows what he's talking about, especially since he's written extensively on the doctrine of the Trinity and is somebody who's fully aware of uh, the evidence that is out there, uh, you know, from T.D. Jakes himself and from their own website uh, as to what it is that he believes regarding the Trinity. And he, as well as myself, uh, in light of that evidence, are convinced that he is a modalist. We continue deny the doctrine of the Trinity, as do certain very popular people today that you'll see on many, many Christian broadcasting networks such as T.D. Jakes. Anyways, um, same viewpoint. It's heresy. It's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
This is the common error. The Trinity is not saying that there are three beings who are one being. How many times have you heard some teachers saying, Oh, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. We don't really understand it because it's, it's three that's one and one that's three and blah, 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 blah. They just don't know what they're talking about. They shouldn't be up there teaching in the first place. We're not saying there's three beings that are one being. We're not saying there are three persons that are one person. That is not what the doctrine of the Trinity is. One being, eternal and unlimited, shared by three divine persons, the Father, the the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he used a plural verb. I and the Father, we are one. He never said, I am the Father. Yes, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but that's because the Logos is the one who reveals the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The unique God, John 1.18, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Never does Jesus say, I am the Father. And in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he uses personal pronouns. Just like you and I, if we were talking together, I would say you. If I was referring to a person, a third person, I'd say he. Jesus prays to the Father and he says, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you in your presence before the world began. That's not how one person talks to himself. Okay, Jesus is not schizophrenic, though he is in certain theological systems. In certain theological systems, Jesus is two persons, the Father and the Son, and his prayer life is really all internal from their perspective. He's praying to himself. That's not biblical teaching. All right? So that's the most common misunderstanding that exists out there. Now, Biblical foundations of the Trinity. I am a biblical Trinitarian. And the cults don't like when you say that. The cults really get upset when you, you say, no, 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 the Trinity came from the Council of Nicaea and it's all philosophy and all the rest of that stuff. No, there are three biblical foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. These are all biblical teachings. And to deny the Trinity, you have to deny one of these three truths. That's why in discussions with people who deny the doctrine of the Trinity, I want to get into the Bible. I don't want to argue about Constantine. I don't want to argue about the Council of Nicaea because that's not why I believe these things. I believe these things because if you listen to what the Bible says in its fullness, not just picking and, picking and choosing what you're going to believe and not believe, but if you're going to allow the Bible to be a single revelation from God that's authoritative and inspired, you're going to be a Trinitarian. That's just all there is to it. Now, I know, sadly, sadly, even in semi-decent theological education today, I'm, I'm not in the majority in putting it that way. Even amongst a lot of conservatives today, they'd say, nah, white, you're naive. You believe in the doctrine of Trinity because of the Council of Nicaea, and that provides you the framework through which you read the Bible. That's the kind of stuff you're going to get in a lot of theological education today. If any of you are thinking about going that direction, let me tell you something. You need to know what you believe before you get there. Because you need to have discernment. You need to have, an, have a foundation built. Because I've seen far too many people go into seminary and they weren't sure what they believed. And when they come out, they have a master's degree in doubt. Now they have no idea what they believe. All they know is there's a whole lot of fighting going on out there, and I don't know where I come down on all this stuff. It's a sad thing to see. Three biblical foundations. Foundation number one, monotheism. Christians are monotheists. We believe there is only one true God. 
When the Muslim says we are tritheists, he's wrong. When the Jewish apologist says we are tritheists, he's wrong. There is only one true God. We believe everything the Bible says about the fact there's only one God. What we don't do is what they do. They assume that when it says God is one, what that means is God is one being and God is one person. They are Unitarians, only one person that shares the being of God. We are Trinitarians. There are three persons that share the one being of God. The Trinity is not the negation of monotheism. That would be Unitarianism. The negation of monotheism is polytheism, a belief in many gods. You say, are actually polytheists left on the planet? Yep, they all live in Salt Lake City. Well, no, they don't, but their leaders do. Mormonism is the most polytheistic religion I've ever encountered. Even Buddhism in some of its forms cannot compete, or Hinduism in some of its forms cannot compete with Mormonism. Uh, for Joseph Smith himself taught that God had once been a man, and there are literally an unlimited number of gods that exist. We are monotheists, one God. Foundation number two, three divine persons. Three divine persons. This is what I was just talking about. We are not saying the Father is the Son. We are not saying the Son is the Spirit. We are not saying the Spirit is the Father. We are not confusing the persons. They clearly differentiate between one another. Think about Jesus and John. He says, I and the Father will send the Spirit to you. We will make our abode with you by sending the Spirit. Well, you don't send yourself. This is the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to indwell believers. There is a distinction that is clearly drawn in Scripture between each of the divine persons. They have voluntarily taken a a particular role in the redemption of God's people. And one of the big confusions that people have is that since the Spirit does not take the same role as the Father, or the Son does not take the same role as the Spirit, since they take different roles, they assume that makes one greater than the other. The Spirit has voluntarily taken the role as the Comforter. The Son is voluntarily. Look at the terminology in Philippians chapter 2. When it says He came, it says He emptied Himself. He made Himself of no repute. That was something He did. He wasn't forced to do it. Yes, he's sent by the Father, but he does so voluntarily. These are clear biblical teachings. So there's a clear distinction that is drawn between the three divine persons. There's no confusing them. And yet, the third foundation, they are co-equal and co-eternal. What do we mean by that? Well, this would be where the rubber meets the road, shall we say, in debates with Jehovah's Witnesses. And that is the deity of Christ and the deity and personality of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice I said personality. Because of the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is a person. I'm sorry, that the Holy Spirit is a person. They believe the Holy Spirit. They don't even use the phrase, the Holy Spirit. They'll just simply say, Holy Spirit, small h, small s. Because Holy Spirit is like the electricity running through these lights up here. It is an impersonal active force. Not a person. It is a force like rushing water or electricity. And so even their own translation of the Bible, quote-unquote, I use the term translation very, very loosely there, uh, they refer to Holy Spirit. She became pregnant by Holy Spirit. That'd be like saying she became pregnant by water. In their thinking, it's the same impersonal active force. That's all the Holy Spirit is. And so this is where those types of issues would be engaged. Does the Bible teach the deity of Christ? On what level? In what way? I debated... Uh, really the, the most well-known today Jehovah's Witness apologist, a man by the name of Gregory Stafford, in Tampa in uh, December of 2003. And uh, Mr. Stafford will say, Jesus is God. 
But he's not the almighty God. He's God in a lesser way than the Father is. And the whole subject was, can you look at the New Testament and come to the conclusion that the prayers to Jesus, the worship of Jesus, the identification of Jesus as Jehovah, that these things point us to a lesser deity than the Father. That became the issue at that particular point in time. So these are the three biblical foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. And if you really want to get anywhere with someone, and I firmly believe that the Word of God is living and powerful and and sharper than any two-edged sword to get someone convinced of something, you might be able to convince them with your own arguments, but then somebody else can come along and unconvince them with theirs. If you really want to change someone's heart, it has to be done through the instrumentality of the Word of God. And so in these these controversies and these discussions that we have, we need to get into the biblical material. And this is how you do so, by getting into the foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Now, You've probably seen the famous triangle before, but this isn't the one you've probably seen. The one you've probably seen is Father, Son, and Spirit, and, it, and on the sides it'll say, is not, is not, and then going into the middle it has the word God and is, 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 okay? That's not what this is. This helps you to understand the relationship of the three foundational, biblical foundations of the Doctrine of the Trinity and the heresies and errors that people have concerning the Doctrine of the Trinity. For example... The first foundation, the, the, the cornerstone, the one that gives rise to everything else, monotheism. There's only one true God. All right? Then we have the existence of three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then, of course, there's only room for one left, and that is the equality of the persons on that side of the triangle. So if you'll draw that out and put those where they are, then by negating... Any one of those sides of the triangle, we can see the resultant heresy that comes from so doing. What do I mean? Well, let's see. If we deny the doctrine of monotheism, then you have three divine persons, and you have the equality of those persons, and the result then would have to be polytheism, existence in, uh, the existence of more than one true God. If you have three co-equal persons... And you don't have the idea of monotheism. They're equal with one another. There's three of them, but you don't have monotheism. The result is polytheism. You have three different gods. You have these competing deities, and it may not just be three gods. Uh, as I said, in Mormonism, you have, you have a, 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 a tremendous plurality of gods. So I say we don't know anything about these other gods. Uh, clearly, they are out there because God, the father of this planet, Elohim, himself was once a man who worshipped his god, and uh, that God was once a man, and you worship his God, and etc., 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 until your mind is wearied in the number of gods that actually exist out there. So if you get rid of monotheism, the two other sides come together to point to the resultant error, which is polytheism. But let's say that we deny the existence of three divine persons. Well, now you have monotheism, equality of the persons, and so you have modalism, or the oneness belief, that we find in oneness Pentecostal churches today. That is the idea that you have one God who displays himself in different roles, who manifests himself in different ways. The specific doctrine of the UPCI is that the Son is not truly divine. Jesus was divine. But the Son refers to the human nature of Christ, and the Father was the deity of Christ, 
And so Jesus was two persons, the Father and the Son. The human nature praying to his divine half would be the prayers of Jesus. And that's how they explain the relationship of these divine persons. The Spirit, then, is just simply the Father in manifestation today. And so you don't have the doctrine of the Trinity uh, amongst those. And, and the odd thing that's happening today, a very odd thing, and it demonstrates the real problems with the doctrine of the Trinity amongst many evangelicals today, is that I know of a major, large church in Nashville, and there's a singing group that comes out of that group that travels around and it's, and they've got CDs out. And they were one of the groups that sang at the Southern Baptist Convention this past summer. If you go to that church's website and read their statement of faith, most of their elders and leadership came from the UPCI. They are, they are oneness in their theology. But in the theology of the church, they say, well, some people think that there are three divine persons, and some people don't think there are divine persons. We're never really going to figure it out in this life. We just don't argue about it. And that's their theology. And the vast majority of other folks go, that's cool. No problem. We'll cooperate with you, and you can, you can come sing at the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and we don't have any problem with that, because we don't think the doctrine of the Trinity really matters all that much. And, and face it, for most evangelicals, it doesn't. For most evangelicals, let's, let's, let's be honest. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is it not true that for most evangelicals, they could go through an entire week of their life and never think of the doctrine of the Trinity? If it has nothing to do with your life, then why, why argue about it? They sing pretty songs about Jesus. That's all it needs to really get. And, and I don't really understand all that stuff either, so why should I care? And so that's why these people are gaining more and more acceptance. As we were driving in this morning, uh, Kayla was on the radio. And people have written to Caleb about Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Phillips, Craig, and Dean are all former oneness ministers. And they're not former oneness ministers who embrace the doctrine of the Trinity. They're former oneness ministers that get together and sing. And they sing at places like Trinity Baptist, which I find always very ironic and funny. But anyways, um, and, and people have written to them and said, does it not bother you that, that these folks are not Trinitarians? And that they don't believe the doctrine of the Trinity is, in fact, uh, exclusively true. And the response from Caleb was, well, we like to focus upon the 90% that really defines the Christian faith. Which means the Trinity doesn't define the Christian faith. So I don't know why they don't have Mormons singing on there. Mormons have their own, their own contemporary Christian music, and the Jehovah's Witnesses don't. But if they ever developed it, why not? I mean, does it really matter? We live in an odd age. An odd age indeed. So, what if we deny the equality of the persons? That one's easy. You end up with subordinationism, which goes off the edge of the thing there, but uh, it's on that one. There you go. <laughs> Subordination. It's not abordinationism. Don't write that one down. That would, uh, that would not really work well. Subordinationism. That is, if you have monotheism, only one true God, and you have three divine persons, and they're not equal with one another, then you're going to have to subordinate one to the other. You're going to have to put them in some sort of lower order, at least two of them to the one, so you subordinate them. And that's what you have in subordinationism. So, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, Jesus Christ is lesser than the Father. He can be called a God, but he's not the Almighty God, and the Holy Spirit isn't even a person. And in liberal theology, of course, subordinationism reigns supreme. And so you have that kind of concept, and that's where we have to deal with the issue of the equality of the persons and defending that. And that's, uh, let, me, let me tell you something, if you haven't ever done it, a little piece of warning here. Um, do not 
take just this brief discussion, get on your white horse and charge off after the cults or something. Um, we should find it a challenge what I'm about to say, but this is very, very true. If a lot of this stuff is new to you and the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door next Saturday morning and you are not ready, don't try. Now, it shouldn't happen that way. We should be ready. I mean, we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We should be ready to talk with those folks. But the fact of the matter is, if you can honestly evaluate your own spiritual condition and your knowledge of the Bible, don't put yourself in that position because they will run you over like a steam train. I have gotten so many phone calls from people who grew up in solid Christian churches and they had just decided they were going to take on the Jehovah's Witnesses. They finally got guilty enough about it uh, that the, you know, the 14th time these people have come by their house, they finally said, all right, I've gone to Sunday school my entire life. Let's find out if I learned anything. And so they take on these witnesses and these people know the Bible backwards and forwards. And they're whipping out John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I am. I am in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, where the Son is subordinated to the Father, so God may be all in all. And, and they're asking all these questions, and, and what happened to God when Jesus died, and blah, blah, blah. And, and the, it's the Lucy Linus effect, which doesn't work real well for me. But if you remember Lucy Linus, when, when Lucy yells at Linus, his hair goes straight back, you know, and he's got the big eyes, you know. And that's what they just experienced. And now they're calling me going, what happened? Don't do it. Take that as a challenge. You should be able to. But take it as a challenge to get ready to. I mean, these folks, let's think about it. A good Jehovah's Witness spends five hours a week preparing to meet with you. How many hours a week do you prepare to meet with them? Does that give them a little bit of an advantage? I mean, if, uh, if, if a football team goes out and they've spent five hours that week training... And you haven't done nothing. Which team do you think is going to be better prepared? Pretty simple, isn't it? Well, they spend five hours a week. And you've ever, how many have ever gone to a, a kingdom hall and attended a, a meeting of Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, didn't think so. Um, they sit there. It, it's not nearly as exciting as what we get to do. Uh, their music is, uh, huh? Well, oh, um, and uh, they sit there and they do watchtower studies. And they've got these little questions at the end of each paragraph and they pass the microphone down the road and row and you, you answer each of the questions. They also have theocratic ministry school. They literally train people on how to speak at the door, how to start the, how to start the conversation, how to direct the conversation, what topics to deal with. And they're carrying a little book around called Reasoning from the Scriptures. And it's specifically designed to give them all sorts of ammunition against you. If you bring up a certain passage, you bring up Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, they can turn to Colossians 2.9, and here's going to be their mistranslation of Colossians 2.9 for the New World Translation, and, and this red herring over here and that red herring over there, and they're ready to go. So don't do it if you're not ready. And if you feel you're starting to get ready, you need to talk to the elders, and they can find out if you are ready. Don't run off. I've seen people who get all excited about stuff like this and they run off and guess what happens to them? They end up in the cult. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. They start off with all the right motivations and they end up getting sucked into it because they really didn't have the proper foundation. But surely, I hope you can agree with me that that shouldn't be the case. We should not be in a situation where the cults are coming to us. They are exposing themselves to us and we have no biblical response. Almost everybody I know 
who has left one of these groups and become a true believing Christian, at some point in their life, they ran into a believer who didn't compromise and knew his Bible. And they may not have enjoyed it, but there is some point in time where someone came along and rocked their world because they knew what the Bible actually taught. And that started the thinking process. That's where they got started. Okay? So... Don't uh, don't run off. So what I would normally do if we had multiple, multiple sessions is now I'd go to foundation one and we go through the Bible. Where is biblical monotheism? How do you defend biblical monotheism? What are the passages that you would want to utilize and in fact want to memorize? Because let me tell you something. I mentioned yesterday, uh, 36 times we went up to General Conference, the Mormon Church in Salt Lake City. You're standing right outside the gates. There's about 10 of us, 30,000 of them, good odds. You're talking with folks. You're frequently talking with, with, with a dozen folks at once, a whole group of people. You don't have time to be looking at a list that you wrote in the back of your New Testament. You don't have time to be using the 28th book of the New Testament called Concordance. By the time you find the passages you're thinking about, the topic has moved four topics down the road. You've got to memorize Scripture if you're going to be effective in those areas. When I first ran to my first two more missionaries at age 19, I had 150, 100 and, 186 verses memorized. Within six months, I had 654 verses memorized. Had to, because when you're talking with those missionaries, if you want to control the conversation, if you want to control the direction it's going, you have to know the Word of God. You have to have it at your command. And you know, when you think about it, people go, oh, I could never do that. Really, how many passwords do you know for the Internet? For your own programs? How many, how many manuals have you had to read to learn how to use those, those certain programs, those proprietary programs they make you use at work? Everybody tells me, I can't do that kind of stuff. No, you can. It's just a matter of having the motivation to do so and coming up with the right process to do so for you. Yes, we all memorize Scripture in different ways, but there are certain ways that are effective for a large majority of folks. Okay? Have you ever had anyone speak any faster during a Sunday school class in this church? I don't think so. I don't think so either. But we made it, and it is exactly quarter till. So hopefully that is useful to you. There is a book. I didn't see a copy of it back there, but I'm sure they could order it for you called The Forgotten Trinity that goes through all of this. And since it's a book, you can read it as slowly as you want to. You can actually slow me down. Uh, we've also done a number of debates on all sorts of aspects of this. I've debated Mormons up in Salt Lake City, Jehovah's Witnesses. Fascinating was the debate that I did in 1999 with Hamza Abdul Malik, a Muslim apologist on does the New Testament teach the deity of Christ. That one is excellent for Sunday school classes or Wednesday night classes. Don't stop it until you get to the audience questions. The audience questions were worth the whole time because you have a whole line of Muslims standing there. And you can get to hear how they think by the questions that they're throwing at me. For example, just real quickly, you know, one of the great objections to the deity of Christ? Jesus comes along. And this is, I'm not mocking this man. This is exactly what he sounded like. I, I can do his accent exactly how he did it. He says, Jesus come along and you see the fig tree. The fig tree. And I'm sitting here going, fig tree. Fig tree. Okay, I'm sitting here trying to translate it. He sees the fig tree. And he, he goes and he gets figs. Now you think that Jesus can eat food, and of course food goes into the body, and it comes out as feces, and feces isn't holy, but you still think Jesus can do that. But anyways, so Jesus, if he went to the bathroom, wasn't God. And so, but he comes to the fig tree, and he thinks it has figs on it. But it have no figs, so he curses it. If Jesus is God, how would not he know it not have figs? How do you answer? 
I get to answer those questions on the fly. How about you? That's the kind of stuff. Excellent material that's available. AOMN.org. You can get the, get the book back there. Thank you very much. We are dismissed. All right. So that was uh, Dr. White's The Biblical Truth of the Trinity, obviously covering stuff from his book, The Forgotten Trinity. A fantastic book if you uh, want to pick up a copy of it. Um, we are up on our first break, and when we come back, we will listen to uh, Dr. Walter Martin a, pro- provide a fantastic biblical apologetic for the doctrine of the Trinity using the Jehovah's Witness Arian heresy as uh, as his foil. So you're not going to want to miss that. All of this is foundation work that we're doing for tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So I wanted to get this out in into the podcast so that you guys have access to it, and uh, we can go from there. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your God is male female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler. Genghis Khan, good for nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm, I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god.
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, denying the doctrine of the Trinity is to deny what God has revealed about his very nature in his word. To deny that is to worship a different God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, when you get there. You will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is lecture number two, and we'll have to call this Trinity Tuesday here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, Really wanting to uh, get into your hands, well, into your ears in this particular case, into your hands tomorrow, into your ears today, uh, stuff that will help you basically understand the doctrine of the Trinity, how it developed, why it's important, what the heresies are, and and, and things of that nature. And uh, Dr. Walter Martin's lecture is a classic, and he does a fine job of defending and giving us a, a, a good biblical defense of the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, using uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses as a foil. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Walter Martin and his classic lecture, uh, J.W.'s Jesus Christ and the Doctrine of the Trinity. How many brought your Bibles this evening? Good. We're going to need them. We're going to read two passages from the Word of God this evening before we study Jehovah's Witnesses versus the Holy Trinity. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the third chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. And I would like you to listen very carefully and follow me as we read a few passages from the Word of God. Exodus chapter 3. Of course, you're familiar with this passage. It is the great passage where Moses is summoned by God at the burning bush to return to Egypt and to lead the children of Israel to the mountain of God. Beginning at verse 11, And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, 
and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And the word I am here in the Hebrew, literally, Aishah, Asher, Aishah, is a repetition of the verb to be. And the Jews themselves translate this, the eternal one. So actually, because God's name is unpronounceable, and because it transcends all human knowledge, they spoke of him as the one who always was, the one who is, and the one who always will be. Aishah. When you hear people arguing about the true name of God is Yahweh, and the true name of God is Jehovah, and the true name of God is this, and the true name of God is that, remember that nobody knows the true name of God. It is four consonants and no vowels. And since we don't have the vowels, nobody can pronounce the name, not even the Jews themselves. If you want to get as close as you possibly can to it, Asha is as close as you will ever get. I am. And this is his name. The Eternal. And this is what he tells Moses from the burning bush. Now that name was translated from Hebrew into Greek by a group of 70 scholars. And this particular translation was made approximately 125 years or so before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. This translation, known as the Septuagint, or the translation of the 70 scholars, was used by our Lord and quoted by him quite frequently. So we know that it was known to him and to the apostles. Now with that thought in our mind, I want you to turn from Exodus chapter 3 to the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. John chapter 8 in your Bible, to read the words of Jesus Christ. For these are tremendously important words and speak to us with great force concerning the identity of the Son of God. John chapter 8, the words of the Lord Jesus. In conflict with the Jews, Jesus said, verse 51 of chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, if a man will keep my sayings, he will never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know you have a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you are saying, If a man keeps my sayings, he will never taste of death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Whom do you make yourself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say, He is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you are. But I know him, and I keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was happy. Then said the Jews unto him, You're not yet fifty years old. You have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, I tell you truly, before Abraham's 
sprang to existence. The word is genocide. Abraham came to existence. I am. Now this is a direct quotation from that Greek translation of the Hebrew which I mentioned before. And Jesus reached into a common translation, just as common as our King James Bible, and said, do you know who I really am? I will tell you. Before Abraham sprang to life, I am the eternal God, the one who spoke to Moses out of the bush. He even used the divine title and applied it to himself. Notice the instantaneous reaction, verse 59. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so he passed by. Why would that one phrase, I am, cause so much furor among the Jews? Well, if you turn the page to John chapter 10, you will find the answer. For here, Christ once again in conflict with his Jewish antagonists, answers them. I and my Father are one, verse 30. We are in union. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, The many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Now notice verse 33. The Jews answered him, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. The understanding is very clear. They understood the language, they understood the culture, they understood the context, and they understood Jesus very clearly. Why do I take the time to begin reading the scripture and to explain this important thing? Because we will be discussing the doctrine which Jehovah's Witnesses attack most successfully and most consistently, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And I want you to understand very clearly from the beginning, as we read our scripture, just exactly the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. So no one will have doubts about it. Now the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society came into existence under Charles Taze Russell. And today, it is the second largest of all non-Christian cults operating in the world. I spoke last evening in giving some statistics about their development and growth, and I pointed out at that particular time the enormous power of the Watchtower in terms of turning out literature. That their presses turn out more literature in six months than the combined forces of Christendom are able to turn out in one year. That they have more full-and-time full and part-time missionaries in the field than all of the Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox missionaries combined. I pointed out their tremendous coverage of literature and multiplicity of language distribution and their fantastic zeal, being able to canvas city after city, house after house, and to carry the gospel of the Watchtower throughout the world. But the Watchtower organization has definite theological views. And obviously, we're not going to be able to cover all of them this evening. Our main concern ought to be the centrality of the Christian faith. And that is the doctrine of God. If you are right in every area of your theology and you are wrong on the doctrine of God, you are wrong enough to lose your soul for all eternity. 
Therefore, we confine ourselves to this primary teaching, and it is of primary importance. What does the Watchtower have to say about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? This, I think, is very important. Listen to them. Let them speak for themselves. Quote, the doctrine in brief is that there are three gods in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is not a person and is therefore not one of the gods of the Trinity. The Trinity doctrine was not conceived by Jesus or the early Christians. The obvious conclusion, therefore, is that Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. Close quote. Now, I don't think you have to have any blackboard pictures or final graphs to get the message. If you can understand plain English, you understand what the Watchtower believes. The founder of the Watchtower said of the Trinity, quote, This view suited well the dark ages it helped to produce. Close quote. This theory is as unscriptural as it is unreasonable. If it were not for the fact that this Trinitarian nonsense was drilled into us from earliest infancy, and the fact that it is so soberly taught in theological seminaries by gray-haired professors, nobody would give it a moment's serious consideration. How the great adversary, Satan, ever succeeded in fostering the Trinity upon the Lord's people to bewilder and mystify them and render much of the word of God of none effect is a real mystery. Close quote. The Watchtower does not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, does not believe that Jesus Christ is true God, and it does not believe in the personality of the Holy Spirit. Our interest tonight is to discover what the Bible has to say about it. Now, after years of dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses on this subject, may I make this rather startling and, I hope, provocative statement. You cannot prove the doctrine of the Trinity to a Jehovah's Witness by rattling off a list of texts to him from the Old Testament or from the New Testament that are generally found in doctrinal books. You cannot convince him that there is a Trinity by quoting the Great Commission or by mentioning the fact that three persons, or apparently three persons, are mentioned in the same verse of the Bible. You will have no effect whatsoever upon Watchtower people with this line of reasoning. But there is one line of reasoning that does affect them, that forces them to think and to probe and to study the Scripture. For they do recognize the Bible as the Word of God, infallible and inerrant. Therefore, they will listen to it even over the authority of the Watchtower. There is the opportunity we have to communicate with Jehovah's Witnesses. Now I have found, and I pass this on to you for your edification, that the only way to quote, prove, close quote, Trinitarian theology is first of all to begin at the beginning, to assume absolutely nothing, and to start just as you would from scratch. And so, I believe we should begin at exactly that point. We should begin by defining our terms what do we mean when we say the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? Jehovah's Witnesses mean three gods in one. What does the Christian church mean? Well, very simply, the doctrine of the Trinity is defined in these terms. And I believe that it's a very simple definition. Within the nature of the one God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three share the same attributes. In effect, the three persons are the one God. 
All we are saying very simply is that within God's unity or nature, we can discern three distinct persons, so far as you and I are able to understand person. And these three persons are, in effect, the one God. That's the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. I admit that Trinitarian theology is difficult. I admit that you can't put it on a blackboard and spell it out to everybody's satisfaction. But neither is it unfathomable, nor can it be dismissed as beyond the mind of man. We can understand what God has revealed. The difficulty is that most Christians are unaware of what he has revealed. And we have to begin at the beginning to search and find out what that revelation is. Now one of the cardinal rules of interpreting the Bible is this. You always interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, never the reverse. The New Testament completes the Old Testament. And you go backwards from the completion to the beginning to interpret. For the scriptures are complete in the New Testament revelation. Now if we can demonstrate from the New Testament that there are really three persons, and if we can demonstrate that the three persons are all called God, and if we can demonstrate that there is only one God, then we are driven to only one possible conclusion. Things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. And the three persons are the one God. You don't have to be a great logician. You don't have to be a great theologian. You don't have to go to college. You don't even have to have graduated from high school to think that one through. Think about it for a moment. If you can show that there are three persons in the New Testament, and if you can show that these three persons are called God or Jehovah to accommodate the witnesses, and if we can show that there is only one God, then the three persons are the one God. And the argument ends at that point. You may say, that sounds very simple. Well, you'd be surprised how many difficult problems have simple solutions. For years we have been hitting Jehovah's Witnesses over the head with standard textbook explanations of the Trinity and they have bounced off the watchtower like BBs off the side of the rock of Gibraltar. I think it's about time that, as Dr. Barnhouse used to say, we got the hay down out of the loft and onto the floor of the barn where the cows could eat it. In other words, put things in terms that people will understand. So let us begin just as if we were talking to a Jehovah's Witness and say to him what I said. Look, if the New Testament, let's not argue the Old Testament, if the New Testament says that there are three persons, and if the New Testament says that these three persons are all called Jehovah, and if there's only one Jehovah, then the three persons are the one God, and the doctrine of the Trinity is true. Now I have made that proposition to hundreds of Jehovah's Witnesses. I have gone over it painstakingly with them, sometimes stating it ten different ways in order to communicate it. And never have I failed once to have them assent to it 
as a valid proposition. They are willing because they are so sure that you can't prove it. Let us begin scientifically, inductively, simply to see whether or not it can be proved. First of all, is there a person called the Father in the New Testament, and is he called God? A legitimate question to which we ought to have a legitimate answer. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 17. This should be marked in your Bibles, and I think it should be clearly indicated why you are marking it there. You are identifying someone. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 17. For he, the Lord Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now we have proven two specific things from this text. One, there is a person called the Father, and he is identified as God. Verse 17, he received from God the Father. Identification. The Father is Jehovah. No possible way out. The Jehovah's Witnesses will agree with you right down the line. Secondly, there is a person called the Son. They will agree with that. Now the question is, is the Son identified as Jehovah? We have already shown, and that's why I deliberately began in Exodus chapter 3, to point out that Jesus Christ suffered from the hallucination that he was Jehovah. Or it was no hallucination, and he really was who he thought he was. You don't have any other way out of the dilemma. He took the divine name and applied it to himself. Exodus chapter 3, John chapter 8, John chapter 10. Either he was deluded, one, two, he was hallucinating, three, he was classically insane, four, he deliberately deceived, or five, he really was who he said he was. Since the Jehovah's Witnesses will reject the first four, they are left with only one possible conclusion. He was who he said he was. And he used the divine name and applied it to himself. I tell you before Abraham was, I am the eternal God. And used it. Now you might mark those verses down in your Bible. There is a person called the Son, and he declares himself to be Jehovah. He even uses the divine name. I will never forget, in 1950, when Jehovah's Witnesses released their New World Translation, I noticed a copy on your uh, shelf in the pastor's study. They released the New World Translation of the Christian Greek Scriptures. And in it, they had translated the Bible and mangled it in such a way as to make the text that taught the Trinity and the deity of Christ read differently in English. And so I formulated a whole list of questions based upon the Greek and sent them to the Watchtower by registered mail. I received a letter which I still have. And the letter says, all the answers to your questions are found in the appendix of the book. 
I went to the appendix of the book, and there's nothing in the appendix of the book that has anything remotely to do with the questions which I asked. So I addressed a second letter to them, and I suggested that they answer the questions point by point, and if they couldn't answer the questions, that they would give me the names of the Greek scholars who translated their Bible so that I might come in and talk with them and find out where they got their translation from. I was informed that the Watchtower Society does not identify any of its Greek scholars publicly for the sake of preserving humility. Thirdly, I challenged their Greek scholars to debate on national radio, coast to coast, on NBC, and offered them four hours of prime time to debate it, what their translation said and whether it was true. I did it on radio and I did it on television, and I crisscrossed the country for 20 years and made the same offer publicly from hundreds of pulpits and churches, seminaries, and even at watchtower conventions and in registered letters, to which I have never received replies. I therefore deduce that the Watchtower does not want to talk about its translation, and it does not want to talk about John chapter 8, verse 58, particularly because in the first edition, they had a footnote which was terribly interesting. The footnote said, should be translated I have been, not I am, as in Exodus 3.14, a clear reference to who Jesus referred himself to be. And then they added this little grammatical footnote, which I'm sure will interest the pastor as well as yourselves, but him more than you, that this was due to the usage of the perfect indefinite tense of the Greek verb. It may come as some shock to you to find out that there is no perfect indefinite tense in the Greek language. It came as a shock to the Watchtower because I wrote them a letter and informed them of that. And in the new printing of the book, that's missing. The perfect indefinite tense was invented to get away from John 8:58, and it was withdrawn when it was pointed out that they couldn't get away with it. But if you take the 1950 edition, you will see the lie at the bottom of the page. And if you look at the new edition, you will see the lie has been removed. But it lied for 15 years. Why? Because they are determined to deny that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And it's essential for us to understand that we are dealing with people who are so dedicated to what they believe, so sincere and so honest in their conviction that they believe implicitly what the Watchtower tells them. There is only one way to penetrate that shell, and that is with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and by prayer, and by showing the facts of the Bible as they really are. And you've got to begin, as I am doing right now, at the beginning. Now, there is more evidence that you can use, and I want to show you how this can be done. Not only did the Lord Jesus claim to be Jehovah, but the witnesses loved the book of Revelation. We have already established that there is one person called God the Father. And we have showed the second person who calls himself God. Let us see if there is additional evidence. Now I'd give you 20 texts right now, but they're texts that the Watchtower has worked out answers for. The answers are no good. But I prefer to deal with the text that they don't have answers for. 
they're better. And Revelation 1 is a very clear example. Verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses admit in their own translation that this is Jehovah God. And they translate it this way. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, says Jehovah God, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. They have established the premise. Revelation 1.8, Alpha and Omega is Jehovah God. So mark that in your Bible. Right next to it, Alpha and Omega equals Jehovah God. That's according to the Watchtower. And I concur with them heartily. Now, as you are looking at that particular passage, I suggest that you go a little bit further to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. The person speaking says, Behold, I come quickly. Verse 7. And as you go on reading Revelation 22, there's a repetition. Verse 12. Behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Verse 13. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I think that's pretty clear. The Alpha and the Omega is speaking again. And the Alpha and the Omega is by Jehovah's Witnesses' own definition, Jehovah God. So Revelation 22, verse 13, can be cross-referenced with Revelation 1, verse 8. And you have a perfect identification of Jehovah God in both places. Nobody will argue. Now as you keep reading, you will come to verse 16 of Revelation 22, and we find out who the Alpha and the Omega is. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you these things in all the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and the morning star. So Jesus Christ identifies himself personally as Alpha and Omega. And if there's even a smidgen of doubt left, verse 20 should clear it up. He which testifies to these things says, surely I come quickly. He said the same thing in verse 7. He said the same thing in verse 12. And in Revelation 1 verse 8, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Now you have a full identification by the two words Alpha and Omega which are the Greek alphabet for Alpha first, Omega last. It's a very important series of texts, and you should mark them down. There's a passage I often use in the same book of Revelation, which the witnesses get quite upset about. You might add it to the ones I have just given you. Notice in Revelation 22 that the Alpha and the Omega describes himself, verse 13, as the first and the last. That's one of his titles. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, John tells us something quite interesting. I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, verse 12, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. 
As you go down, you find a description taken from the book of Daniel, which the Jehovah's Witnesses concur is a description of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Now get to verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, identifies himself as Alpha and Omega, identifies himself as first and last. And now he even goes further. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Literally, the Greek reads, I am he that lives and became dead. And behold, I live for all eternity. Amen. I have the keys of hell and of death. Now, the identification is irrefutable. Christ calls himself first and last. And Jehovah's Witnesses admit he's Alpha and Omega. It's a terrible problem for them to solve, and they don't solve it at all. You should know it very thoroughly. If you really want to have one more bit of information, I suggest that you mark down in your reference, along with Revelation 1, 17 and 18, Isaiah 44, verse 6. This the witnesses themselves quote quite frequently, and I think in this connection it will help you a great deal. It reads... And if you look at it in Isaiah, I think you'll see why. Thus says Jehovah, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So Jehovah identifies himself as the first and the last. Now either there are two firsts and two lasts, which is linguistic suicide and logical redundancy. And there are two alphas and two omegas, which is Greek suicide. Or the same person is talking, and that you are forced to irrevocably. We have now shown that there are two persons, and they are both called Jehovah. You are not asked, and I am not asked to understand it. We are simply told it's true. And it is. But there is still more evidence that is needed. Is there a third person? And can such a person be identified? I think if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 5, you will see something tremendously interesting that many people do not see when they first read the book of Acts, and they have to read it very carefully to note these things. You're all familiar because I'm sure you've heard sermons on Ananias and Sapphira. They were the first five percenters. You heard of ten percenters. There are people who tithe. Well, these were five percenters. That's five for me and five for the Lord. Well, Ananias and Sapphira and his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife being literally in cahoots with him. The word privy means, in Old English, she was actually working with him in the deal. She knew what was going on. And they laid that part of it they intended to give at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, verse 3, and keep back part of the price of the land? 
While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Now underline the next sentence. You have not lied unto men, but unto God. Now go back a verse. Peter said unto Ananias, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. Now, who is this Holy Spirit? Verse 4. You have not lied to men. You have lied to God. The same man who identifies God the Father identifies God the Holy Spirit. You cannot lie to a table. You cannot lie to flowers. You cannot lie to a microphone. You cannot lie to a carpet. You cannot lie to a cat or a dog. You can only lie to a functioning, cognizant personality. Because only a personality can be lied to. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter recognized the Holy Spirit as a person. And then further went on to say, this person is God. Now should there be any further doubt in the mind of the witnesses, and they don't like that passage, I would suggest that you show them Acts chapter 13 where there appears some fascinating reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, while they were in the church at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod and the Tetrarch and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, will you note that, verse 2? The Holy Spirit addressed them. And the Holy Spirit is quoted directly. You do not quote directly impersonal beings because there is no such animal. You only quote personalities. Quote, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Not the Father, not the Son, I have called them. Who is I? Look at your verse. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. Uses the first person, ego, I, designating personality. So there are three persons in the New Testament. And these three persons are all called God. And yet, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God. There is one God. You are driven to the inescapable conclusion that the three persons are the one God whether you can rationally understand it or not. Oh, I recognize today that rational proof is everything in the scientific age. But in reality, there are all kinds of things which defy rational proof and which we accept. 
For instance, at the present moment, this audience is seated upon very comfortable chairs. Are you not? Anybody think they're not? Good. You're all wrong. You are all seated upon electrons, neutrons, and protons, revolving at a speed of approximately 186,000 miles per second. They have been arranged in mathematical proportion to simulate the structure which you think is there. But in reality, you are sitting upon energy in a form of matter known as seats. Do you comprehend that? Is that thoroughly rational to you? Don't feel badly, it isn't too rational to the scientists either. Do you know that there's a whole world called the world of antimatter that exists, theoretically? A whole universe opposed to our positive universe, which is a negative universe. Rational? Not in the least. Logical? Maybe. Is it demonstrably true? We don't really know. But it's a fairly good guess, argument, theory, hypothesis that it is. But you better believe that you're sitting on electrons, neutrons, and protons because the first atomic bomb that goes off will demonstrate it to you empirically because it is based upon the same premise. Exactly. Nobody understands it fully or rationally or logically, but they accept it. Nobody in this room understands what light is, whether it is corpuscular, whether it is in packages, or whether it is in waves. But nobody is going to stop believing in the existence of light until they can rationally and logically explain it. It's here. Similarly, it is not necessarily a demand upon us that the mind understand the nature of the creator of the universe before it believes that he exists. He has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you are in a position to start giving some texts, and the texts will have validity. I would suggest the following texts and they are good texts. John chapter 20 reveals categorically the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Thomas refers to him in verse 28 as my Lord and my God. So he is worshipped as God. And the doctrine of the Trinity begins to emerge very clearly in the early pages of the New Testament. Once we have laid this foundation, look for yourselves. It's obvious, I believe, to everybody. At the Incarnation, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary is told specifically by the angel, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee. The power of the highest one shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing which is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Third person of the Trinity will overshadow you. Power of the highest, first person of the Trinity will come upon you. And what is born of you will be called Son of God. Second person of the Trinity. 
Trinity at the Incarnation, Trinity at the Baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus, verse 16, Matthew 3, when he was baptized, went up immediately out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. Jesus, second person of the Trinity, is baptized. The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, third person of the Trinity, verse 17, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, first person of the Trinity, in whom I am well pleased. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, at baptism. I believe it's possible to go on and demonstrate other instances in the Bible that prove categorically the doctrine of the Trinity. Matthew 28, 19, for instance, is the Great Commission. To go into all the world and baptize, making disciples, and then using the divine formula in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Again, Trinity in baptism. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the doctrine of the Trinity most clearly taught. I don't know whether you've ever noticed this or not about the resurrection, but let me take a moment and point it out to you. In the resurrection, the scripture categorically says that the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you know that? It does. Acts 3 verse 26 says the Father raised the Son from the dead, and so does 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Both those passages say that God the Father raised his Son from the dead. You wouldn't want it any clearer than that, would you? But somehow or other it gets confusing. Because in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus Christ says that he's going to raise himself from the dead. In fact, his own prophecy is, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John said he was speaking of the temple of his body. So the Father raised him from the dead, and the Son raised himself from the dead, but the scripture says in Romans 8:11 that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. If the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he shall in like manner make your mortal bodies come to life. Now it's really confusing, isn't it? The father raised the son, the son raised himself, and the spirit raised him. All three persons raised the body of Jesus from the dead. And yet, in Acts 17, 31, we are told that God raised Christ from the dead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in resurrection. Your pastor gives a benediction quite regularly, I'm sure, in church. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide with you all. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
If you want Trinitarian texts in the New Testament, in my book, Essential Christianity, I've listed about 20 of them, and we don't have time for them tonight. In the Kingdom of the Cults, another 20 or so. There are plenty of them. And the Old Testament is riddled with them. And they're all listed for you. The fact is that the New Testament teaches the doctrine. The fact is three persons are called God. The fact is there's only one God. And Jehovah's Witnesses have erred in teaching that the Trinity is derived from the devil. Oh no. The Trinity is God. What is derived from the devil is its opposition. Those who would fight against God himself. On the front of every watchtower there is a quotation from the Old Testament. Will you turn to it? Isaiah 43.10. You might point this out to the watchtower. Because the watchtower says, and I want to quote them so there will be no doubt that the teaching is accurate. The watchtower says, our Lord Jesus Christ is a God. Still the united voice of the scriptures must most emphatically assert that there is but one almighty God, the Father of all. The Logos, Christ himself, was the beginning of the creation of God. Our Redeemer existed as a spirit being before he was made flesh and dwelt among men. At that time, as well as subsequently, he was properly known as a God or as a mighty one. As chief of the angels and next to the Father, he was known as the Archangel, whose name Michael signifies the one who is like God. Close quote. Who is Jesus of Nazareth in Watchtower Theology? Jesus of Nazareth, before he came to earth, was an angel. The first and greatest angel made by God, Mikhail Akangalos, he who is like God, the first of the angels. But, and this is important, what does the scripture say that they put on the front cover of their watchtower? Well, it's worth reading. Isaiah 43.10 You are my witnesses, says Jehovah, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know. Pretty clear. Believe me. Pretty clear. Understand. Very clear. I am he. Before me there was no God form, neither shall there be after me. Close quote. So the united voice of scripture does not say that our Lord Jesus Christ is a God because Jehovah says there wasn't one before him and there won't be one after him because he's the only one. Every great evangelist that I've ever read preaches from Isaiah 45. And they always preach from this text. You might write it down. Verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no one else. I am God. There is no one else. The point that is so imperative for us to understand is the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses have two gods. They have Jehovah God, the big God, who created Jesus, or Michael, the little God. And so, they have more than one God, they have two. A friend of mine who left the Watchtower organization and is now a minister of the gospel, turned to me one day and said, you know, when I was a witness, and one of the 144,000 
He said, a verse in the Bible used to puzzle the daylights out of me. And I said, well, whatever puzzled you, we were a top, a top watchtower person. I said, whatever puzzled you, I said, I want to know about what puzzled you. He said, well, he said it was a passage in the book of Hebrews. He said it kept needling the daylights out of me. And he said, every time I asked the watchtower for an answer, he says, they would run for cover. And I said, boy, that's got to be a good text. Where is it? He said, Hebrews chapter 1. And I turned to it. Verse 6. And again, when God bringeth in the first begotten, obviously it's the Father, brings in the first begotten into the world, he said, this is the Father, let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship who? The first begotten one. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses say the first begotten one is Jesus. So when Jesus was brought into the world, the Father turned to the angels and said, worship him. I said, well, why should that bother you as a Jehovah's Witness? He says, it bothers the dickens out of me because of Luke chapter 4, verse 8. And when you put Luke 4, verse 8 with Hebrews 1, 6, you can see why it bothers the watchtower. The devil said to Jesus, I'll give you everything, worship me. And Jesus answered him and said, thou shalt worship only Jehovah thy God, and him alone shall you serve. How can God the Father tell the angels to worship Jesus of Nazareth when Jesus says, you shall worship only Jehovah God? It doesn't make a bit of sense. Unless, unless, verse 5 of Hebrews 1 is taken in the same context. For unto which of the angels did he say, At any time you are my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And then he goes on with the passage. When he brought him into the world, he said, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now keep reading. And of the angels, he said, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the son. Notice the context. Unto the son, he says, Thy throne, O Jehovah, is for eternity. The Father calls the Son God. When you put those passages together, it's devastating. I got that from a converted Jehovah's Witness. I give him credit for it. And it's a marvelous passage. I've never found a watchtower person yet that could stand up under it. Nor can anybody. Our time is up and we want to have a question and answer period. I want to leave you with this thought. The doctrine of the Trinity isn't dry. It isn't incomprehensible. It can be demonstrated many ways, analogically. And I'm going to give you the best illustration of it I ever heard. I was lecturing in Ohio on this very subject. And a professor of chemistry came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, I like what you said about the Trinity. The Trinity is not triplex. One plus one plus one equals one. But triune, one times one times one equals one. He said, I like that very much. He said, I have an illustration to go with that, which I think you should use when you lecture. And I thought I should too, so I took it from him and used it. He said, in a laboratory, he said, it is possible to have one substance, three things at the same time. I said, at the same second? 
He said, at the same microsecond. I said, what is it? He said, good old plain water. I said, how in the world would you do that? He said, here is how you do it. You take a vacuum tube and put in water, pump out the air, and put the tube under 230 millimeters of gas pressure. Reduce the temperature to zero degrees. And as the thermometer hits zero, watch what happens in the tube. The bottom of the tube instantly freezes, the center of the tube remains liquid, and the top of the tube puffs into gas. He said, in that one tube at that given microsecond takes place what every chemist knows as the triple point of water. H2O is solid, liquid, gas simultaneously. He said, surely, if water, which is the simplest of all elements, can be three in one at the same moment, the creator of water and of the universe can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. It's not going to give him any trouble at all. I leave you with the thought. We may not fully understand this side of heaven, what the nature of God is, because in order to do that, I believe we would have to share that nature. But one thing we do know, there are three persons mentioned in Holy Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one of them is called God. And yet the scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Can I tell you why Jehovah's Witnesses seek and state that, uh, seek to prove and state that Jesus is not the Son of God? Uh, the answer that I can give to, that he's not the Son of God, not God, you mean, yes. Uh, I can answer that very simply by saying that their theology about the Lord Jesus is derived from a theologian of the fourth century named Arius of Alexandria, who first denied that Jesus Christ was God uh, and taught that he was the second uh, a second God, the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God. This was Arius of Alexandria. He derived this in the early centuries of the Christian church. This was picked up later on by Charles Russell in the 1870s, about 1871 or two, and he was the founder of the Watchtower Society and, and the uh, first editor of the Watchtower in 1879. So uh, they did not come up with the idea originally. Arius came up with the idea, and they picked it up from him. So when you encounter a Jehovah's Witness, you are encountering one of the most brilliant theologians of the Christian church in its early centuries, Arius of Alexandria, and his heresy persisted for 300 years, and it took the best minds of the church, finally, to destroy it. And you're not talking to somebody who just happened to pick up something by the side of the road. They have distilled and refined the arguments of Arius from Pastor Russell, as he was called. And they really believe that, G that they have solved the doctrine of the Trinity. There is the Father, he created the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the invisible active force of Jehovah God, but he's not a person. And they think they've solved the Trinity problem, and they do it by attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. And they do it consistently all through their writings.
And they have all the way from Russell and Rutherford through Nathan Knorr and the Watchtower Society today. Yes, sir. Two-part two question, what translation should we uh, be prepared to uh, deal with when we deal with the Jehovah's Witnesses, and what uh, deviations should we look out for in their theology particularly? Uh, their translations are the New World translation of the Christian Greek scriptures and the New World translation of the Hebrew scriptures. They're in, in green bindings published by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Secondly, they publish the emphatic diaglot, which is not theirs, but uh, actually it's a translation by Benjamin Wilson, uh, who was a Christadelphian who lived in Geneva, New York, and Russell bought the plates from Wilson or his estate and took it over and printed it under the Watchtower's imprimatur for a number of years. That's a Greek interlinear translation, Greek on one line, English on another. They just came out with another translation, another Greek-English one from the Watchtower, which is very damaging to their own position. I should think they would have left it alone because they correctly translate John 1.1 in the Greek, which makes Jesus Christ God. And I don't know how in the world they're going to explain that one to their people because they've been telling their people for years that John 1.1 should be translated that the word was a God. And now they're stuck with this new one they just released, and it says, and God was the Word. And I don't know how they're going to weasel out of this. I'm just intrigued with how they're going to uh, escape, and I, I don't know quite yet. But I, I would look out for that one, because doubtless some of the aberrations are in there. Those are their general translations. Now, so far as what you look out for, Jehovah's Witnesses deny the doctrine of the Trinity, the personality of the Holy Spirit, the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They teach that he was raised as a spirit. They do not believe in the existence of hell or everlasting punishment. And until recently, they did not even believe in a resurrection for the unjust. They have revised their theology within the last few years and now include a resurrection for the lost, which they did not do before. Uh, the witnesses uh, also teach that uh, no one may receive blood transfusion because it's a violation of uh, Exodus chapter seven, uh, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 17, which says you shall not eat blood. Because you read uh, Leviticus 17, you'll find out it's talking about animal and bird's blood. So uh, the witnesses are a little off on their exegesis. I call it a rather fractured exegesis, but they, they hold this view. They don't believe in saluting the American flag because it's the emblem of the sovereignty of the United States and is idolatry. That's why. Does that answer your question, sir? Sir? I... Why are they attracting so many people today? Why are Jehovah's Witnesses growing so rapidly? I believe there are a number of reasons. All of them are complex. They're not simple. Uh, I'll give you a few of them from my own observation. One, I believe absolutely, as the scripture teaches, that the powers of darkness, that Satan himself energizes the kingdom of the cults. And I believe anybody that's going to work in the kingdom of the cults is dealing directly with the prince of darkness. And I covet your prayers constantly because you are right in the middle of this darkness and how great a darkness it is. That's the first thing. Secondly, it has a great appeal because we have in our day a fantastic spiritual vacuum in the United States. Churches that are not preaching Jesus Christ's gospel. Clergymen who are denying the foundations of biblical theology from the highest pulpits in the land and from the greatest theological seminaries. People are justly confused by this type of uh, liberalism in our schools and in our churches. And so 
sick and tired of liberalism and the gouging and the dilution of biblical theology, they are looking for some sort of spiritual reality. And I think they grab for the first thing that sounds halfway biblical. And Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever their faults may be, are biblical, 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 all the way down the line. Now, they may fracture the Bible in their hermeneutics, and they may twist texts and rest the scriptures to their own destruction, and I believe they do. But they certainly make great use of the Bible. And thirdly, Jehovah's Witnesses place a tremendous emphasis upon works. And you know as well as I do, anybody who knows anything about human nature, that we all love to think that we had something to do with it. And Jehovah's Witnesses have always been apocalyptic. Always talking about Armageddon is right around the corner. Well, you know something? For once they're right. It is right around the corner, and they don't know how close it is. And God help us not to sit back and say, well, they're going to get what's coming to them. That's not what we're supposed to be thinking. What we're supposed to be saying is, good heavens, think of all those people outside of Christ that we have yet to reach. These are souls for whom Jesus Christ died. And we haven't got a dozen missionaries in this field today amongst over 20 million cultists. Is it nothing to you all? that are passing by, that what? That people are perishing. These people are perishing. With Bibles in their hand, they're perishing. And uh, ours is the wondrous challenge of bringing them to Christ. You say, well, I don't know many Jehovah's Witnesses that get saved. Well, I know some. And I know Mormons and Christian scientists, and I meet people all over the world, not in this country, but all over the world, who have come to Christ out of the cults. And I want to tell you, you get a few of them in your church, and they're the best workers you'll ever have. Because they've served the devil with great distinction and they'll serve the Lord with even more distinction. They're utterly fearless. That's what we need. Christians who are fearless and who don't care what the Kiwanis, the Elks, the Oddfellows, the Masons, the Shriners, uh, the uh, Rotary or anybody else thinks of them. The only person that they care about is what Jesus thinks. And when people start to think about what Jesus thinks of them and not what other people think of them, that's when they begin to go out and start winning souls to Christ. And until then, they're not going to do a great deal because they're frightened of what people will say and do. Well, don't be. Because we're going to appear in the presence of God a lot quicker than any of you dream. And every one of us should give an account of himself personally. And there is a sin of omission as well as a sin of commission. Any other questions? And for the 144,000. I'm sorry, sir, I can't hear you. Oh, what is their argument when they get more than 144,000? Well, they haven't reached that number yet, so they don't have to deal with that problem. And some of them keep dying off, I suppose, so I, I really don't know how they're going to actually deal with this, because according to the book of Revelation, there are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it names the tribes, and I don't see how you can get out of a literal interpretation of the passage. Now, the millennials will spiritualize it, but then, then again, they'll spiritualize anything at the drop of a hat. So we shouldn't be too concerned about that passage. Yes, question. Together, the two ideas of... Uh, Jesus Christ as man and as God, because that's what you're essentially saying, because it refers to God and the Father and to Christ. So how are we going to explain what appears to be an inconsistency? 
Uh, I believe the answer to this is found in the fact that the Bible teaches two very distinct things. It teaches that Jesus Christ was both God and man simultaneously. That's what the incarnation is all about. Now, he didn't have a button on the back that he pushed. One day he was deity, or one hour he was deity, and the next day he was humanity. He was at all times the God-man. That's the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of God and the Father and Christ. And Paul specifically calls it a sacred secret, something that God has not chosen to reveal. We can answer it, however, by pointing out this that every time you see a passage in the New Testament which speaks of Christ praying to the Father, of Jesus saying in John 14:28, my Father is greater than I, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. These are the passages which you're referring to along with Colossians chapter 1. Uh, many, many passages like that. I think what you have to do is read it in the light of one passage which explains it all, and that is Philippians chapter 2. Now, I'll give it to you literally from the Greek. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, existing in a form of God, did not think it something to be grasped after to be equal with deity, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him, and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bend and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave. He lived among us as a perfect man. At the same time, he was God. He didn't know everything when he was here. He said so himself. He said he didn't know the day or the hour of his return. He said he committed all knowledge into the hands of the Father. He did not display omnipotence, omniscience, or omnipresence while he was on earth. Though he was truly God and existing in a form of God, these things he left in the hands of the Father. Yet his nature never changed. He was always deity. Now, I don't know how to tell you how he managed it, because the Bible doesn't say how he managed it. All it says is that he did it. And I'm willing to accept the fact that he did it. Now, if Jesus had ever said, my father is better than I, we'd be in real trouble. Because better is a comparison of terms relative to nature. But greater is a term which is descriptive of position. While he was on earth, the father was greater than he was because he occupied the position as a slave. But in the glory of the resurrection, Jesus said, all authority is surrendered to me in heaven and earth. He took back again in the resurrection what he had laid down in the incarnation. What happened in the fundamentalist modernist debates of the 1920s and 30s was this. The fundamentalists were so eager to make Jesus God in the historic Christian tradition that they ended up with all God and no man. And the modernists were so eager to make him all man and deny his deity that they ended up with all humanity and no divinity. Neither position is true and both are heretical. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And no one can understand how God managed it. But John 1 says, in the beginning, he was with God, he was God, he became flesh. This is sufficient 
for the faith of the church. In the reader, Sunday evening I made reference to the Jehovah's Witnesses saying that Jesus returned in 1914, the headquarters was in Brooklyn. Uh, actually, Russell taught that Christ's, Christ's invisible presence, as he called it, dated from 1874. And that in 1914, the millennial reign began, and uh, whether we know it or not, and the headquarters of Jehovah's Theocratic Organization was established in Brooklyn. I have yet to see the lion lay down with the lamb, however, unless the lamb is inside the lion. I therefore question seriously this millennial dawn theology. Uh, somebody else, you had a question. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the rapture. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the invisible second coming of Christ and that the rapture for them is known only to God's own people and the 144,000 are the bride of Christ who are permitted to take communion, the rest do not. This is a very peculiar view, but it is their view. And uh, they base it upon a study of the Greek word parousia, which is translated presence sometimes in the New Testament. They totally ignore many other words, such as epiphania, such as apocalypsus, erkomai, all of which speak of Christ's actually being here. They, uh, they ignore any studies in this area, primarily because the average Jehovah's Witness couldn't tell you the Greek alphabet if it bit him tomorrow morning downtown. He doesn't know alpha from omega himself. He knows what the Watchtower has taught him. They are not Greek scholars. They are not Hebrew scholars. Don't be a bit afraid of them. They really don't know a thing about biblical theology. But I'll tell you what they do know. They know what they believe and they know why they believe it. And they will twist you into a doctrinal pretzel unless you know the answers. A dear lady came to me in the church I was speaking in in New York some time ago. And she said, I've developed a way for dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's very effective. And I said, well, I'm delighted to hear that. I've been dealing with them for some years, and I've yet to find a way that's 100% effective. What is your way? She said, well, when I see them come up the walk with their briefcases, she said, I pull the shade down and lock the door and pretend I'm not home. <laughs> We've degenerated into a nation of shade pullers and door lockers. It was a day when we'd pull the shades up and open the door and grab them by the arm and say, come on in, I want to tell you about Jesus. Something's wrong. And we better correct it pretty soon because the Lord's going to hold us accountable for it. Question. He poured himself out and took upon himself the form of a slave. This is what I intended to say. Well, I might have been, you know, I might have been quoting the King James there, found in fashion as a man. And I might have said found in form as a man. But uh, he was true man. I categorically stated that. He, did, he didn't appear to be man. He was true man. But he was not omniscient when he was on earth. He was not omnipresent. And he was not omnipotent. He certainly did not exercise all of the characteristics of deity while amongst us. And uh, I would specifically say that all you need is one instance of absence of knowledge and you have disproved omniscience. And Christ did not know the day and the hour of his return. He specifically said so. Someone touched him in a crowd and he turned around and said, who touched me? Not you touched me, but who? Now, 
quite obviously, if you read the New Testament, you'll find out that his supernatural power and his knowledge and everything which he had derived from his relationship to the Father. He said, I by myself can do nothing. It is the Father in me. He is doing the works. Now, I do not understand fully how this relationship worked. But one thing I'm positive of from the New Testament revelation, that the key to his living among us as a man involved some degree of his voluntarily laying aside the independent exercise of his attributes and living truly as a human being, while at the same time never ceasing to be God. Don't ask me how he managed it, I don't know. Yes. Fifteen years ago, they told you that they were not born again. Now they begin to tell you that they are born again. Why have they changed their view? They've changed their view because they've redefined the term born again. That's simple. To them now, being born again means something different than it did 15 years ago. Now it refers to being a child of the kingdom. It has nothing whatsoever to do with being reborn by the Holy Spirit and being regenerated. Not a single thing. Yes, Jehovah's Witnesses, you quoted John 14:9 to them, and uh, then they came back at you with John 1, no man had uh, seen God at any time. Jesus said, he that had seen me had seen the Father, and they came back and said, well, no one has ever seen the Father. Isn't that right? What you're referring to? It's very simple, because we, we are always tempted to think of the Father as God. But the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. No one has ever seen God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known, has revealed God. After all, Abraham called the person that he spoke to on the plains of Mamre in Genesis 14, Jehovah God. He did. Now, who was it? <laughs> Certainly wasn't the Father. Because Jesus says you have never seen the Father's shape or form and never heard his voice. Who was it? It had to be the pre-incarnate Christ. So what the witnesses did is they foxed you into translating John 1.18, no one has ever seen the Father at any time. Where it actually reads, no one has ever seen God at any time. Nobody ever has, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we have seen the Son, and He is the fullness of God in flesh, all that God can mean to man. Now, I would like very much to go on. It's 15 minutes past 9. I'm not dodging any questions. I'd be here all night answering your questions. I'm delighted to do so, and I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards if you have any further questions. Great lecture, good stuff, worth considering. All right, so that's our edition of Fighting for the Faith today. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you don't already support us, visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and thank you for your support. We truly do need it in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. Uh, tomorrow we're going to build on this foundation of uh, you know that we've laid here with these lectures regarding the Trinity, and uh, you, you know just have to tune in, keep posted, and I'm actually going to put some stuff in your hands. Uh, you know, as far as documents that will be able to further help you in this, uh, which I think is important to do because uh, in talking with people about the doctrine of the Trinity, it is um, 
Uh, there's a lot of confusion out there, and not a lot of churches are taking the time to correctly teach it. So, all right. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Thank you.